Hello and welcome to Navy Forum's podcast for Wednesday the 28th of October. And joining me on this edition are Assistant Editor Steve Withers. What did you expect? An exploding pen? And News Editor Mark Hodgkinson. Why are the doors opening? Really, in the whole film, that's the two best quotes you could come up with. I don't even remember your quote, Mark. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you're quoting the right film. (laughs) I've gone to IMDb Skyfall 2012 quotes. Uh, right, so the Star Wars, The Force Awakens, bad timing last week because the <laughs> the trailer came out after the podcast yeah. went out. All hell broke loose. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so sadly we kind of missed on on the the reaction straight away, which I think would have been far more giddy and childlike uh, than they are, they're going to be now. I've got just a really bad feeling about this. <laughs> Why? I I haven't. I love the scale of the scale and the look of it all, and yeah, and, and the battles just the battle scenes just look incredible. So yeah, so yeah, that'll so do for me to be quite honest. Yeah, but yeah, but the double lightsaber for the in the trailer of um, Phantom Menace when that door opened and Darth Maul was there and the two lightsabers and oh, that was going to be so. And the fast cut to the the pod race and oh, it looked fantastic. Yeah, but there were always danger signs in there, i.e. a small kid, not a good sign. No kids in this, I'm glad to say. And um, Jar Jar Binks looked dodgy. I mean, they kept both of those to the minimum in that trailer quite cleverly. I can't, I I don't even think I can remember actually seeing Jar Jar in the trailer. Yeah, no, he's in there. He's he's got a couple of lines. Um, But this this trailer looks, um, well, it looks adult. You know, I mean, it looks like there's serious things going on and an adult cast and, 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 you know, what I really like about it is this is the third trailer now, and I still don't really know what the plot is. I mean, you know, I've got a rough idea of some context of some of the things we're seeing, but but I've no idea what the actual plot is. I mean, there's a few questions that are left unanswered. I mean, most obvious one being, where's Luke? He's not on the poster, and he's not in the uh, any of the trailers so far. So you're going to have to go and see... I mean, he's definitely in the film, so you're going to have to go and see the film to see him, which is interesting in itself. I think that's quite cool they're leaving some things for you to find out when you actually see the film. I mean, these days, you know what it's like with trailers particularly, they give away the entire bloody movie and, and yeah, this, but, they haven't done, which I like. But the flip side of that could be that the, the, <laughs> there's not much of a story <laughs> and it's just a whole load of set pieces all dragged together. No, being fair, it actually does look really promising. And what's our face? I, you see, I've kept myself so far away from it to save myself that I, I don't even know the characters' names yet. You mean Daisy Ridley's character, Daisy right? Ridley's, yeah. Yeah, you know, I've tried not to get to know who the characters are and stuff. Because if you look at the trailer very closely and you look at the the poster very closely, there's maybe some misinformation in there, maybe some uh, sleight of hand. But you pointed it out in the poster. Looks like another Death Star in yeah, the background. I'm hoping it isn't. <laughs> That's definitely a you know a bait and switch of some kind. Yeah, um, yeah. But because it's, you know, it's... we've had Death Stars in two films already, yeah. and it didn't work out too well on those two occasions. So really, do we need a third time's a charm? And you pointed out that she's. Um, Daisy Ridley's character, Ren, is is crying over what looks like a dead body, or yep. certainly uh, someone on the ground. Yeah. Um, possibly a furry character. Yeah, uh, and and I haven't seen any Ewoks in the trailers yet, so. <laughs> yeah, if it was an Ewok <laughs> that was dead, she wouldn't be crying. She'd be dancing with joy like I would be. Uh, no, Chewbacca, well, I mean, let's be honest. I, mean, not, I don't mean to be cruel here, but... Um, Peter Mayhew's pretty old, and last time I saw him, he could hardly walk. He had two walking canes. Now, because he's very tall, so I'm assuming. The, the, he... But there the wouldn't be that silly to put that in the trailer. I th- again, I think this is another red herring. I think it's another make it look like something and get people talking and get get the hype growing. And although it I mean, is, you want someone to. I mean, the thing is, I don't have a problem with someone being killed because you know, unless people die, 
then there's no threat and danger, is there? I mean, in Star Wars, you know, you were, as a kid, I was definitely surprised when, when um, Obi-Wan died. Um, spoilers, sorry, if you haven't seen Star Wars. Um, Obi-Wan died, and you're like, well, blimey, you know, anything could happen here. And that's great. And then no one dies after that, pretty much, I don't think. And um, at least no one, you know, on the good side, on the on the light side of the force. So I don't know. There was a few Ewoks going in. Yeah, quite a few Ewoks. Yeah, that was the best they could come up, wasn't it? It was like one Ewok crying over a dead Ewok. It's like, oh, God. Um, yeah, you need um, you need characters to die, major characters to die, in order to give the plot some threat and some danger and and to show that things are up for grabs. But um, but, so that but should they, should they go as far as Game of Thrones way of doing it, where they just <laughs> everyone's up for grabs? <laughs> It'd make it no, interesting. That's the extreme. I think uh, you do get attached to certain characters, and it is tricky if you kill a very popular character. I mean, I know that when they were making Jedi, um, both Lawrence Kasdan and Harrison Ford lobbied quite hard for Han Solo to die in that film. Um, Lucas is having none of that. Um, now, obviously, Lawrence Kasdan is, is the writer on this film, or co-writer. You know, there have been rumours of Han Solo maybe popping his clogs in this movie because Harrison Ford's no spring chicken. But... Um, there's also, um, but when they were making Jedi, uh, Mark Hamill um, lobbied quite heavily for Luke to go to the dark side. Um, he felt there was plenty of uh, scope for that. Um, and interestingly, there's a famous, there's a program called, I think it's called Dinner for Five, where they basically get people to sit around dinner and they talk about stuff. And on that program, one episode was um, Mark Hamill and J.J. Abrams, where Mark Hamill pitched just long, long before there was even rumours of a new Star Wars movie and um, Abrams had nothing to do with it whatsoever. It was just a coincidence that Hamill pitches the whole idea of a bad Luke to JJ. And, you know, that one shot in the trailer, where I don't know if it is Luke, but certainly he's got a robotic uh, right hand, which would be appropriate. He's wearing a, a hood. He's touching a R2, but he looks, uh, doesn't look very... Yeah, you know, not in a, not in a dodgy way. Friendly uh, way. They're very friendly. He's just rubbing R2's... Um, Dome. <laughs> Um, but it looks, uh, it doesn't look like, um, you know, it doesn't look like a good character for some reason. So maybe they're, you know, maybe they are going that I way. I thought that was Luke. I honestly thought that was Luke. Yeah, I'm assuming that is Luke, but you don't see his face. But how, but how, do, you, how do you know that, that Luke isn't, how do you know it's not like what Luke has tried to do in Phantom Menace where he's, he swapped Kira Knightley with, uh, yeah. with uh, so how do you know that, that Luke isn't the guy with that lightsaber? And he's, so when Finn has holding what looks like Luke's lightsaber in the forest and he looks really, really scared and he's holding it up defensively and <clears throat> there's that shot of the red lightsaber coming in and the guy holding it and he's not wearing a helmet. The helmet's gone. Yeah, but that's Kylo Ren and Kylo Ren is being played by Adam Driver so I don't think mm, that... But is it? Or could, uh, it be, well, could it be Luke? Adam Driver's a favourite one actor so I don't think he'd just be in a film purely to be a massive... <laughs> well, Keira Knightley was a big actress. No, she wasn't. She was un completely unknown at the time of Phantom Menace. She was 15, Phil. <laughs> But she did look an awful lot like Natalie Portman. Uh, in fact, strangely, uh, and I, I don't know whether this is relevant to the plot, but Daisy Ridley looks a, a lot like the pair of them as well, doesn't she? Yeah, she does. She looks and I've, sounds like the spitting image. Of I think that's, that's a pretty obvious um, Yeah, I don't think that's a coincidence either. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean my, my guess there is it's Han and Leah's daughter. Daughter, yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, and I'm not sure, Princess Leia does appear in one shot of the trailer and she is on the poster just about, just behind Han Solo. Looks, she but looks is it really, really, if you're looking at it right now, either of you, what's up with her hairstyle? <laughs> <laughs> or is that Chewbacca's hand behind her head? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> um, yeah, but the, the one shot you see her in the trailer is she looks really sad and she's color, you know, cuddling yeah. into Han. And when you see Han taking the other two, no you know, the walk, walk, there's no Chewbacca there. Uh, maybe Chewie, maybe Chewie, you know. He is quite old, in fairness, hasn't he? He's maybe like 
200 years old or something like that. Apparently. I don't know what the life expectancy of a Wookiee is, do you? Quite good. Quite good. Not as good as Yoda, but pretty good. Uh, he was fairly old. I mean, that's that kind of information you just kind of know, but it's never mentioned in the films. It's like Ewoks are never called Ewoks in the movie. It's like loads and loads of stuff about Star Wars. It has just been sort of absorbed by some presses of osmosis yeah. um, by reading about the films when you're a kid and stuff. Um, but these things never get, like Tusk and Raider never gets mentioned in Star Wars. They're called Sam people the whole time. It's just, but you know, you know what they're called. It's quite clever in a way. Yeah. Anyway, I'm massively excited. I mean, I yeah. So I think basically going from the trailer, the, the, the other big obvious thing is there is that very few CG shots. Yeah. Very yeah. few big major CD, CG shots and, you know, practical sets and looks like practical effects, model work. That looks really promising. Yeah, I mean, uh, JJ was uh, from the very beginning and said, I want to do this more old school. So, um, like you said, Phil, proper sets, location work, um, practical effects, makeup effects, some CGI, obviously. I mean, you're not going to have that well, in as well. But, but the thing that amazes me is BB 8. And, and, he, <laughs> and when they brought it on stage at um, the Star Wars it's convention, really clever. Really clever. And you got to think, because when you see it in the trailer, you think, oh, another CG thing. But then when you actually see it on stage and, and it's working and it's moving it. Mm. Yeah. Is that the ball y thing? Yeah. 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 I like that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I mean, and, there will again, be CG characters in it. Yeah. Uh, we haven't seen them yet. Um, so, again, they're saving these kind of things for the actual film. Also, I like the fact that the poster itself, you know, these days movie posters tend to be rubbish Photoshop jobs, proper old school um, painted hand, movie yeah, posters. Hand drawn like, and um, painted, yeah. Yeah, really like that. It looks great. I mean, everything I've seen and everything I've heard to up to now. Uh, has filled me with a feeling, you know, of, of hope and um, of a new feeling of hope. So that's good. Um, a new, a new and obviously, hope. I'm not the only one since tickets pretty much sold out on the first day. Yeah, I've got mine for 11, 11 a.m. on the Friday morning. So, I'm going uh, to the five past twelve screening on Thursday morning. Yeah, uh, basically the first screening. And then you're writing, anywhere. and then you're writing the review, and then going. And to I'm bed. driving home, then writing the review, then going to bed. <laughs> it's prob- probably be probably best one. to to reread it before it goes. Yeah, well, you can prove it, Phil, so make sure I'm in gobbledygook because I'm half asleep. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm excited. I mean, I, I'm seeing it again <laughs> after that. I'm going to. I'm, I'm planning on seeing it at least three times. I want to see it in 2D and 3D. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm going IMAX 3D and then I'm going to go and see it in 2D. Mm. It's the way I'm going to do it, I think. It's not native 3D, just for the record. It's um, Yeah, yeah, I, I, I know that film. bit. I know that, but I really like the IMAX screen yeah, at my local yeah. place. No, 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 I'm just saying for people, people that are listening, it's, it's not a native production, but it is shot on 35 megapixel film, which is a really, uh, again, one of those sort of throwback things that JJ has been doing. Like, I'm shooting it on film, so it's, it's shot on 35 mil plus some scenes shot on um, IMAX 70 mil. So it should look awesome in uh, in IMAX. Yeah, I'm I'm excited, and and if they are brave enough to kill people off and to make it really quite a dark film, which is what it looks like in the trailer this whole twist with Luke. I mean, if he does get the dark side, I mean, that that could be really interesting. Um, yeah, I wonder if they had have the guts to end on a cliffhanger because it's two years to the next one, isn't it? Actually, no, it's not even that long because I think episode eight is planned for May uh, 2017, which is would be the 40th anniversary of Star Wars. Yeah, there's, so, there's one film every year, isn't there? So the, well, it's so going to be uh, one, one of those is... standalone films next Christmas. So is that yeah. the Young Han next, the next No, one? it's um, it's the Rogue... Rogue, 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 Rogue Squadron. Rogue yeah. One? Rouge, Rouge one, yeah, Rouge one, yeah, Rouge one, which, which is going to be so that's next Christmas, and then the following May, episode eight, yeah, um, which is one of the reasons why JJ isn't involved because um, there was no time for him to finish this and then do the next one. 
that's going to be directed by Ryan Johnson, who made Looper. So um, if that's coming out in a year and a half, you could end on a cliffhanger, couldn't you? You've got It's not too far away. It's not like you're going to have to wait three years to find out what happens, um, which they did with Empire. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, it could be excellent. And, yeah, I mean, after nothing for years, we've got a film every year for the next five years. So. It just has to be good, and, and we're sold. And I'll tell you what I really, really liked about that trailer, the score. Mm. Yes. It was it was really you know hearing Leia's theme again. Well, it's actually Han and Leia's theme because that's what it developed into, wasn't it? Later in the trilogy, it started out as Leia's theme and then it kind of developed into Han and Han and Leia's theme. But the way that was played played quite slow and dramatic, and the hairs on the back of the neck, <laughs> you know, it just had that impact. Really, really good. Um, so looking forward to hearing that. Yeah, I think um, whatever happens, Disney have got a massive hit on their hands. The question now just is how big of a hit, whether it will be. Uh bigger than avatar yeah i think it will i think i think certainly it, if any film's going to do it this is the one yeah and it's it's a i know it's a big ask ask and i know it's a big thing um and it's it's a hell of a lot of money that it has to pull 2. in 2.7 billion but the fact the pre-sales have gone so well and the fact that they've you know there's nothing challenging it at the box office for at least three or four weeks no and they have booked out every imax screen for three weeks from mm. launch that's worldwide that's massive it's going to it depends on, it will make a lot of money very quickly. There's no question about that. It will definitely trash Jurassic World's records for, you know, faster to 100, faster to 200, et cetera. Whether it will have the legs and repeat viewings to keep going all the way through 2.7 billion is another question, but it's definitely going to make I, I, a lot of money. I think it will, because the one thing that Avatar didn't have was the huge fan base, which Star Wars has. Mm. I mean, Star Wars has generational fan bases. You know, everybody from guys like us that's seen it the first time around, down to people who, you know, maybe the first time they saw it on the big screen was the special editions in 97. Um, then you had the prequels. So people coming in at the prequels. Um, and, and you know, I just have to look at my family. And, and it's everybody from myself to my brothers to my brother's kids who are, you know, 12-year-old son Star Wars mad and has been since he was a, since he was a nipper. You know what I mean? So there's a That's huge true, but fan base I there. think what you tend to find is that there's going to largely be blokes. Star Wars is a very blokey thing. Generally, I'm not saying that's there are there's not everyone, but I mean, whereas for some strange reason, um, James Cameron seems to be able to tap into some sort of universal zeitgeist. So if you look at Titanic, people were going to the movies that hadn't been in 50 years. Like old people were going to the movies that hadn't been in years and years and years. If you look at Avatar, women were going to see Avatar, which don't normally go and see sci-fi movies like that. So it's whether it gets that cross you know, crossover to all genders. I don't think, I think it's going to worry about it. <laughs> Would, uh, what's your kids like, Mark? I mean, they're both girls. Are, are they interested in Star not Wars? In, no, not, no interest in Star Wars whatsoever. But I know a lot of the boys in their classes are. And I'm not sure where they get the exposure to it from. Um, I guess there's Disney Channel are ramp, going to rip ramping up adverts like mad, I would think. Well, you've got the animated series as well. So and the animated rebels. series, yeah. I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure what, Which is actually what their really entry point is, but there are a significant number of kids already into Star Wars before this late, latest round of movies. So, yeah, I think it'll, I think it'll, it'll do incredibly well. Yeah. If you get yeah. a chance to watch Rebels, by the way, it, it actually is worth checking out. It's, it's very good. And they do explain some quite cool stuff in there. So, you know, um, I always wondered, are the stormtroopers in Star Wars, are they clone troopers left over from the Clones War, Clone Wars? And they explain in, in Rebels that uh, the clone troopers are bred to age quickly, so you can breed an army fast. But they obviously age quickly, so they don't last very long. So in fact, all the clone troopers have pretty much died out of old age, effectively, between um, Sith and Star Wars. And the Empire had to then basically you know, um, um, bring in conscripts to be stormtroopers and train them quickly, which would explain why they can't hit anything 
<laughs> for most of the original trilogy. Um, so that's yeah, that they um they are um you know conscripts. Bit of a tangent, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> there you go. By the way, Wookiee's life expectancy is about four hundred. No, you just you just looked that up, have you? Yes, I am. I'm on Wikipedia, <laughs> so that it must be true. There you go, folks. Um, so Force Awakens it opens pre- previews on the seventeenth. Officially opens on the eighteenth. Going to go and Is that see Ed's it. Birthday? Who? Ed. Remember Ed. Who, who's Ed? Ed from the past. <laughs> <laughs> I think it might be. Yeah. So eighteenth, and you know, I think it's going to get the repeat viewing, Steve, because you've already said you're going to go and see it a few times. I know for a fact I'm going to go and see it more than once. And I very rarely go to the cinema. It has to be something really major to get me to go to the cinema. And that's not because I don't want to go to the cinema. It's just because it takes a lot of effort to do it. So. Yeah, I mean, as long as it's good, it will get a preview. I mean, think about it. Um, when it was Titanic 97, that was $1.8 billion, which was just an insane amount of money at the time. Um, and when Menace came out two years later, I thought that would trounce all over Titanic, but it didn't. Um, and I went to see the damn thing four times at the cinema, even though I didn't like it. But I guess it didn't get the kind of repeat viewing at Titanic because it wasn't actually that good. No. So as long as uh, Force Awakens is good, uh, it will get repeat viewing, yes. Uh, the other thing is the runtime. A uh, lot, lot of people saying it's 90 minutes. So that's quite, that's quite short for Very short. Because no, Star, Star Wars films are always around about two hour mark. They want to be 90 minutes. That's too short. I, should be, I, that, I will feel shortchanged. Now, that's just rumours on, on the mm-hmm. internet, but um, that's the rumour that's coming in. It's actually, for a Star Wars film, it's, it's short. Have we heard if it's Atmos or anything? Uh, yeah. It'll definitely be Atmos. Definitely. Whether it'll be an Atmos Blu-ray, I don't know, because Disney haven't done any Atmos Blu-rays yet. But um, definitely at the cinema, if you can find a cinema that does Atmos, which is more common now than it was a couple of years ago. So I'm a bit, I'm, I want to go and see it. The print works in 3D IMAX, but I'm a bit worried I'll be ill. It's just, it's just, it's just, don't sit at the front then, Mark. Yeah. So anyway, that's Star Wars. I'm sure we're going to talk about it every week now until we've seen it, and then probably for a few weeks after we've seen it. <laughs> it'll get good coverage. In yeah, the I, th- I think pretty good. I mean, week. it's got its own Star Wars forum as well, on AV forum. So, you know, if you ever get, uh, you know, withdrawal symptoms, you know where to go. Lots to talk about. It's getting exciting now. How many times have you watched the trailer? Quite a few. I've also watched the, uh, I, I put a link in on the, the supercut. Supercut's really good, really well done. Whoever did it did a fantastic job of combining all three current trailers to create a supercut, which gives you a bit more context and, and looks really good. So uh, very excited. Also and, downloaded uh, it actually and played it on the big screen. <laughs> a yeah, that, times. the other thing was worth watching is uh, Screen Junkies. They do a, a deconstruction after they just after they'd watched it, and really quite interesting some of the points that they're raising that. Yes. Um, so if you've got five ten minutes, go and have it because it's not a long episode. Normally they're about an hour long, but it was quite a quick episode because they did it straight after. And they're total geeks, those guys, and uh, they picked up on a few things that I didn't pick up on. And one thing you picked up on, Steve, was the stormtrooper goggles as well, which was yes. Interesting. Um, I'm not sure if I noticed it first or whether I read it somewhere, but definitely if you look closely at the very first shot of the third trailer, you see Daisy Ridley's character. She's um, basically a scavenger, which is inside what you know what I now realise is a crashed star destroyer. You see, you saw initially in one of the other trailers, and um, she looks at the camera and she's wearing these goggles. And I, I think I'm pretty sure they're made of. They're old stormtrooper. Yeah, know, they are. I watched, I watched it another 32 yeah. times after you said that. <laughs> <laughs> on freeze frame. Yeah. On, so on... <laughs> um, we, I think it's safe to say that we're all quite excited at the moment. Yeah, like absolutely. Business. Right. Okay, let's move things on so we can win some prizes. What can we win, Mark? Okay, so we've got 
Epic on Blu-ray, which is open to all members and closes on the 4th of November. Uh, we've also got the NVIDIA Shield, which is open to all members again and closes on the 6th of November. And we've also got Waterworld on Blu-ray, and that's for active members only and closes on the 9th of November. Okay. Any previous winners? Nope. Okay. No, there's also another competition that will be up. It's not up yet, but it will be time, by the time this podcast goes up, where you can win uh, one of three copies of the 60th anniversary Blu-ray of The Lady Killers which um, is a fantastic film. Uh, far better, well far better than the remake. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, the original is really good. Really, really funny and really, really black, uh, but an absolute classic. And apparently a lovely transfer, you know, a lovely new restoration. So worth winning. So watch out for that. Uh, right, so let's move on to some hardware. We talked at quite some length about the Panasonic OLED TV, uh, mainly because we've uh, we've had quite a bit of input with that TV before it was launched, and then obviously uh, reviewing it afterwards. And it is a stonker, but Steve, the, the big problem with, with it is... It's not cheap. It's not cheap. And, and it's also th- curved. It's curved. So, yeah, they might have spent a lot of time and a lot of resources in getting the picture really looking good, and it does, it looks fantastic. But there's a big price attached to that. So the other big competitor at the moment is a 4K Ultra HD TV from LG, which is flat. It's the EF950V. You had that in, 65 inches. Um, You had it all last week. And I understand that it's not perfect, as these things aren't, but for the money, it's a better value. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at, you know, you're talking about... Uh, 4999 so it's, it's a £3,000 difference in price, and that's a lot of money. And whilst the uh, CZ952 is unquestionably good and a reference point, is it 3000 quid better? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, there's not really. But um, so, you're, yeah, you, you, if you're weighing up um, price differential, no question, the LG is, and all their L, you know, OLED lineup, you know, they're all significantly cheaper. Now, they're not perfect, as you just mentioned. There are a few issues. Some of the issues that are on the LG are also on the on the Panasonic, of course. The big one being that banding just above black. That is still there. But the one thing that Panasonic worked out harder probably than anything else was getting rid of those dark edges, and they did succeed to do that on the CZ952. It is still um, present on the EF950V. Um, having said that, on the whole, it's absolutely fantastic television. I mean, I gave it highly recommended. I said in the conclusion, you know, if I was buying a TV right now, first of all, I would want a flat uh, OLED, and in that case, it's the only option. Um, but also, I think that you know, price, price per performance wise, it's an absolute stonker. Um, accurate picture out of the box, good calibration controls. Uh, not quite as accurate overall as as the CZ952, but not far behind. I mean, there's not much in it. I don't think you'd even notice it. You know, unless you were doing a side by side comparison with some very specific test material. But basically, you wouldn't tell the difference. Now, obviously, the incredibly deep blacks. Much brighter than the um, Panasonic, which is worth noting. I did actually have a chance to watch some HDR content on this TV, uh, and it looked superb to me. I mean, obviously, you've got the deep blacks. Maybe it's not as bright as a uh, LCD, but, you know, dynamic range is about the difference between dark and, and, and light. And, and if you've got deep blacks to begin with, it's easy to give that image a, a, a plenty of impact in terms of dynamic range, even if you're not as bright as other televisions. That looks fantastic. Um, it's got two, uh, HDMI 2.0a and HDCP 2.2. Uh, it's got HDR, as I just said, it's a 10-bit panel, so you, and Ultra HD, of course. So you've got um, future-proofing built in there. The, the, the um, color space is about 98, uh, sorry, about 88% of DCI, so not quite full DCI, but uh, you're getting most of what you would get from um, the proposed standards that are coming out next year and from uh, Ultra HD 4K Blu-ray, so it can deliver all of that. Uh, and, and, of course, the, the thing you have to point out here is we still don't know 
the discs that are coming out in the Blu-ray format, if they are actually going to be no, 709 or DCI, we don't know yeah. that yet. At the moment, that's just speculation on our part. I've seen nothing in writing from anyone that says it's definitely going to be DCI. Everything else I've mentioned is in the specs, definitely. And obviously the specs say up to Rec 2020, but whether it'll be Rec 709 or DCI within that, we don't know yet. So, you know... Otherwise, though, obviously, if you're watching and what you will be watching predominantly going forward is still going to be, you know, uh, full HD broadcasts or Blu-ray. They looked absolutely superb. Um, I, I, it was a fantastic television. I thought the sound was really good on it. I had a, Input lag was a bit high if you're a serious gamer, 50 milliseconds, but um, it was certainly lower than the Panasonic and certainly low enough for someone like me who's not, not a hardcore gamer or anything like that. Um, yeah, and it's got WebOS, of course. And whereas the Panny has almost no um, smart platform really to talk of. So it's a, it's a great television. And it's certainly really good value for what you're getting. 65-inch uh, 4K flat screen OLED for just under five grand. That's pretty good value, really, in my opinion, for what is really still cutting-edge tech. Um, yeah, I, I mean, what else was there? I mean, aside from the banding and the dark edges, the only other point I would raise is is um, I did notice some it's very subtle, very slight, but some judder in, in, in some of the motion handling uh, across all the content, 50 hertz, 60 hertz, and 24p. Um, but I suspect most people wouldn't even notice it, to be honest. Some will, some won't, some are more susceptible than others to noticing things like that. But if you know what you're looking for and you're familiar with the material, you might spot it. But uh, aside from that, I, I mean, I, it can fault it. It's a fantastic TV. The funny thing is, in the review, you know, there were things I thought might get responses. The one thing that got the most response was the one thing I didn't think anyone would respond to, which is, because I did it, I checked for it because people asked me to on the Panasonic thread, which was, you know, I obviously left up some patterns and that kind of stuff to see whether there would be any image retention. And there wasn't, no image retention. I haven't seen any image retention on any of the TVs that I've reviewed. Did you see any on the one you reviewed, Mark? No, nothing. No? Okay, no. so um, certainly whatever LG and Panasonic have been doing to mitigate that, they're doing a very good job. Even when I let, deliberately left things up for a long period of time, nothing, which is great. Having said that, both you and I, Phil, have seen OLED panels with screen burn in them. Yep. Um, now, obviously, these were ones being used for demos and shows and stuff and were pretty much bad, very badly treated and they were pre-production samples and maybe there were things in there that were, where there weren't things in there that have been added since. Because, for example, um, Panasonic have their Pixel Orbiter, which they ported across from Plasma to help with any, any image retention. And also, both, t both TVs, when they're in standby, um, they're screen washing the the um, panel. So uh, one little tip is if you've got an OLED TV, don't pull it off. Don't put, you know, pull out the plug at the mains. Leave it in standby when you're not using it. Um, but, you know, what I said in the review was I, I didn't experience any, any um, image retention or screen burn, but I, I can't guarantee that's not going to be the case for somebody else of the... So that's all I said, but for some reason there was a massive... You've got to think they wouldn't put those the screen wash and, and the functionality no. in there if there wasn't well, a risk, would it? There there's obviously it. a risk that it could happen, and that's why those things are there, so it doesn't. But you can't guarantee you're not going to get anything. And and as we said, Phil and I have seen screens, and I have, you know, I've read comments from people saying they've, they've had problems with that. So I, you know, I, could, I could see um, where that argument was coming from because they're saying, well, you mentioned something that, that really, you know, you're then putting doubt in people's mind and so on. So I could see it from that point of view. But the thing is, at the end of the day, if we didn't mention, even though there isn't any screen burn or image retention issues, if we hadn't mentioned it in the review and a few people go out and buy the TV, um, not on the recommendation of the review, but having read the review as part of their um, you know, process in, in deciding what they were going to buy. And then they set the TV up in such a way that they did get retention and burn. 
they're going to come on the review and, and be just as adamant about mm. why we should have mentioned it than the guys that are saying, well, we shouldn't have mentioned it because it's it could be attached to it and could be damaging. I don't think it is. I think you've got to tell people exactly what is and isn't happening. And when questions are raised, you have to answer the question. Yeah. And and if the question is, no, there's no sign of it, then that's the question answered. But you, you've got... <laughs> You've got to answer it, and we've got to be thorough in the reviews. And I make no apologies for that. Now, and and you know, I'm I'm never going to turn around and say to the guys that are reviewing this stuff, you know, if it's not there, don't mention. It. No, we will mention everything, and if if it's a concern, we will look at it. Yeah, we it's worth remembering plasma TVs, don't we? That not all sets were affected in the same way or at the same time. Mm. You know, there's, there's a lot of variables. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, one of the most heartbreaking things I ever saw was a, um, I think it was a. A six hundred, a KRP six six hundred, with a Windows logo burnt in. Somebody's been using it as a monitor, and uh, that was. I that mean, was it's just worth remembering the reason I did all that testing and mentioned it was because it had been raised at length in the in the Panasonic thread. Um, what I do regret is probably where I put it. I, I sort of segued into it after talking about input lag, and I should have just mentioned it. Set and I did. I've moved it set to the actual picture um, quality section instead which is where it should have been in the first place. So it's, it's not like I'm saying, if you're a gamer, don't buy one, which wasn't my intention at all. Um, and, I'm not, and I'm certainly not saying, you know, don't buy one because it might have, you know, image retention or something. I'll get one. They're fantastic televisions. You know, OLED's the future, in my yeah, opinion. No but, question but about it. I want it to be a success. Yeah, but treat it right. Because if, yeah. if you yes. treat it wrong, we have in the past seen issues and we can't guarantee that it won't be. Yeah. I think you should treat any television with respect and carefully, you know. I mean... I mean, not so much an LCD, but certainly if you're yeah, into plasma. Steve, it's a bit stroking it every day and, and call it, yeah. telling it you love yeah. it and stuff. So going a bit too far. <laughs> yeah, overall, uh, I loved it. I thought it was a great TV. I shall be sad to see it go. Not the flight case. No, not the massive flight case that came in. <laughs> as the size of a small car. Uh, right, so that's the, the LG um, Kraken TV. I mean, we are being a bit swell. We'll cover this more. As we get to the end of the year, we'll do our roundups and our best ofs and what's really amazed us this year and, and, and so on. But, we, you know, we're moving on. Things have taken their time getting to the point that we're at because it was promised two or three years ago, Steve. Um, if you remember Monaco and the big launch events and all that kind of thing. 2012. It's yeah. Taken, yeah, it's taken a little bit of time getting there. But, you know, we're now at a point where there's more than one manufacturer getting involved. Um, there's rumours that more are going to get involved come CES by sourcing their panels as well from LG Display and other places. So it's looking interesting and hopefully, you know, once you get a competition coming into the market, um, once you get economies of scale, which are still tiny when you compare to LED LCD manufacturing, um, that's where you start to see price drops. That's where you start to see the mass market um, buying these TVs and starting to enjoy them. The EF950V I had had um, a little bit of crosstalk at the bottom and the top of the uh, panel. Maybe something to do with whether the um, polarizing filters are properly positioned or something like that. Because um, apparently, certainly other people who own them, there's been definitely people who've said like mine are fine and mine not so good. And so maybe it's um, it's variable in a bit of a lottery in terms of when you buy your buy your TV. But that was a difference between the two as well. So I mean, aside from the aside from the slight banding um, just above black, the uh, paint didn't put a foot wrong. Uh, and whilst the EF950V was very close, it wasn't quite perfect, and hence that's why one's still a reference status and the other one is highly recommended. But don't get me wrong, um, for the money I'd, and for the fact it's a flat screen, I'd be in like Flynn on the um, EF950. Um, right, so uh, that is OLED, and like I say, I mean, it's uh, where we are at the minute, really quite exciting times, and, and we're on the run-up to um, the big show of the year, which is CES. Forget Christmas and New Year, they're irrelevant. It's CES, that's what we're... 
um, as his enthusiasts are looking forward to. And it promises to be a, a, a big show this year, but I'm not going to you know um, drum it up too much because we've done that in the past, Stephen. It's been a bit of a damp squib, actually. But, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. there should be some really quite interesting stuff to look at and, and some, hopefully some more manufacturers jumping on the OLED bandwagon. Right, so let's move on. Uh, Mark, what's Freeview Play? Well, it's uh, it's the new TV platform coming from Freeview, as the name would suggest, and it gives you all your uh, Freeview channels, so that's 75 TV channels, up to 14 in HD, and around 30 digital radio services, but they're lined up together with the uh, on-demand catch-up players from BBC, ITV, Channel 4 and Channel 5. Now, we have to point out here that not everybody's going to get all these channels, depending on your geographical location. This is, this is true, and, and this, I've put in the article a place where you can check what you should be getting um, if on the free, on the DTG website. Why is it different depending on your geographical location? Because it still comes off the transmitters, the old ah, transmitters. Right. So if, uh, for example, my hometown, um, when I go back to my well, parents... Week. Like when I go back to uh, my parents, um, they don't get Dave and they don't get quite a few other channels on Freeview <laughs> because not well, it's, it's, not, it's, it's not a massive loss, but it's the fact that they can't get. I, mean, I think they only get about thirty-five channels because they come off of uh, uh, a distribution transmitter and not a main transmitter. You see. See, I'm quite lucky where I get I get everything. I get I get all the. Yeah, same the here. I, I get everything. I, in fact, I can look out my window and see the transmitter. Because I'm really close. <laughs> is it too close? <laughs> All 166 different channels, including radio channels, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, again, it depends geographically where you are. I mean, if you're in a rural area, like I say, that you're using relay transmitters, then sometimes the channel count will be down, um, and you'll miss out on the HD versions as well. Yeah, this is true. This is true. Uh, and it's, it has a scroll back uh, electronic program guide, so you can go back seven days. Uh, this is again just through those catch-up players I've, I've mentioned, and if you see a program you fancied watching in the past, then you just click on it and it and it plays automatically from you know iPlayer or whatever, which is quite good. Although the more I use that feature, the, the, I've only I realise I only do it for reviews. Really, I don't I don't do it in in, in normal TV operation life. It's 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 kind of cool, but I don't know. Staring at a program guide isn't. I don't know, it feels a bit old-fashioned. I just tend to search for something if I'm, if I'm looking for something like that, which you can do on on Freeview Play as well. Um, it doesn't have any. Uh, it doesn't have Netflix at the moment, but that's been promised for early in 2016, and I'm not sure what other plans they've got um, to bring to bring other on-demand players. But you would think they would try and catch up with. You're basing this it, on the Humax. Basing this on the Humax. No, all Freeview Play players or recorders will have ITV player. BBC iPlayer, all four and demand five, and it's coming to all Freeview Play devices in early 2016. But then depending on what manufacturer's device you've got, you could have a whole load of other services. So we're expecting some Panasonic recorders and players coming out very soon. And you've got to think that they'll have the typical Panasonic smart apps as well on alongside that. So you've probably got Netflix and Amazon as well, YouTube. Um, so it's not as fixed as as its obvious competitor, which is UView, which features the same the same TV Mark, services. Yeah. So you were reviewing a Humax Freeview Play box. Yes. Yeah. And I, for example, I've got downstairs a Humax UView box. Yes. What's the difference? Um, just some software features, really. The, 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 well, the user interface is a little bit different. 
although you know it's it's quite similar even some of the same fonts they've used so you've got to think they share some of the same code at least um it's some of the recording features so um UView's quite tightly controlled on the software side, so you can't add, um, you can't manually schedule recordings, you can't edit a recording once you've made it, you can't add time uh, minutes or at the end or uh, at the start of a recording in case it, it overruns, something overruns. You can't do that on any UView device, but you can with Freeview Play. Uh, the Humax also allowed you to, the, sorry, the Freeview Play Humax allowed you to archive recordings to uh, USB storage and also play uh, stuff back over the network there's nothing in that there's nothing that'll allow you to do that in uview uh, it's also had wi-fi uh, as yet no uv hey. devices featured wi-fi so it, it's you know it it's got some advantages for people who are heavily into the recording and archiving side of things whereas if you if you're interested more in the catch-up players and the and the streaming side of things then uview's got that better covered right now um, right, so that's Freeview Play. It's interesting. It does a, a bits and pieces more than what UView does. What's the device that just popped in this week, Mark? Because you were on about it this morning, and it, it seemed really quite interesting. This VBox. It's yeah, VBox TV Gateway. Um, so it's basically, it's just like it's like a router for your Freeview channel. So you can you put the aerial into the back of it, and it distributes. Uh, it turns it into an IPTV stream and distributes it across your network to tablets, Chrome browser, uh, Kodi, um, UPnP, Android software, uh, iPads, other TVs, other TVs, other TVs with the relevant software. Yeah, indeed. Cool. It can also record, so it's a, it's a fully functional um, PVR. You can plug whatever storage you want into it, USB storage of up to two terabytes, I think they've tested it. So it's also a good, it's the hub for the for all your recordings. There's an app for Android and iOS. It, it, you know, it, it's it's pretty well covered, to be honest. If you can't find something to play on in your house, then... What kind of price are you talking about for someone like that? In the bracket of £150. <laughs> Okay, so before I ask Steve the big question, we find out what he's been to the cinema to see. Uh, Blu-ray Roundup, what's coming up on Blu-ray, Steve? Come on, Blu-ray, this week we have Mr. Holmes, which is a film about an ageing 93-year-old Sherlock Holmes, uh, retired in, on in the South Coast, uh, who is played by Ian McKellen and is actually suffering from dementia, but it's the film is tied in with memories of his previous cases and one particular case that he didn't manage to solve. Um, it's less of a, a kind of a mystery slash detective story, more of a character piece, but certainly reading the reviews of it, both the review that was done by Shruna when it first came out and also the review of the Blu-ray that Kaz has just done, I think it sounds really interesting. Uh, Ian McKellen, always watchable. Um, and the idea, I like the idea, the concept of it, the idea of flashbacks, the idea of um, his cases actually being more less um, fantastic than they are in the stories, which are basically published by Watson and they're largely fictional. Um, and the kind of the idea that this whole other character of Sherlock Holmes, that Sherlock Holmes, the fictional one, the one that's in the movies, is built up around him and he's trying to deal with that. And at one point, I think he goes to see a film about Sherlock Holmes and someone else playing him. It all sounds quite meta, but in a, in a good way. And, and I like the sound of it. It sounds interesting. Hang, hang, on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Mr. Holmes. So did Sherlock Holmes actually live to 93 in real life? <laughs> uh, for those that don't know, Sherlock Holmes is a fictional character. No. Uh, but you'll be surprised. I think, have I not told the story before about when I worked Yeah, how, how many people yeah. actually think he is a genuine, yeah. real no, that to, uh, historical character? Yep. 
people honestly believe he's real. Um, he, he obviously he isn't, but uh, people do. Um, um, but the concept of this film kind of is that if he was a real person, but maybe and and what how he would deal with um, the fame that followed his cases. And I like it. it sounds it just sounds like an interesting film, um, low key but but fun and uh, and intelligent. And so actually, after proofing the the review for Kaz yesterday, I, I ordered the disc. I thought I quite like this. Sounds interesting. So that's coming out today uh, on twenty sixth of um, October, and also the sixth anniversary Blu ray release of the Lady Killers. That's nineteen fifty five. The best Ealing. version of it. Yes, yes. Not the remake by the Coen Brothers. This is the original Ealing comedy, a uh, pitch black comedy, but absolutely brilliant. Shot in Technicolor, interestingly. Uh, this is a restoration that's been done for it. Uh, you've got Alec Guinness at the peak of his powers. You've got Peter Sellers. You've got uh, Herbert Lom. Uh, it's, it's a fantastic film. Uh, very funny. Uh, and certainly, uh, if you haven't seen The Lady Killers, you really should see it. It's brilliant. And that's that. Uh, we actually, as I mentioned at the beginning, there's a competition as well, so you could win it. Um, and the other big releases this week are re-releases. Um, Game of Thrones has been remixed. The first two seasons have been remixed in Dolby Atmos. Uh, making it the first TV series to ever be mixed in Dolby Atmos, and they've um, so they've re-released the, the first two seasons in the same extras, same picture, but with the Dolby Atmos soundtrack, and also um, in a steelbook um, packaging. So this is going to cost them in because I think you can get no, all no, for, not at all, twenty two no? ninety nine. What for both seasons? What, uh, each? Sorry, twenty two ninety nine each, which is not that it's much not for, at all. Huh? Well, for uh, set. Well, the four seasons were fifty five quid, so. Yeah, but obviously you're getting the Atmos soundtracks and, and the steelbook packaging and that kind of thing, which is trying to make... I mean, they I think they appreciate that they are repackaging things they've, they've sold before, so they're trying to give you a bit of extra. But I've got to say, um, well, a couple of things. If you are Atmos capable, it doesn't actually default to Atmos. It defaults to, for some strange reason, the Dolby Digital soundtracks. So make sure you select Dolby Atmos if you can. Um, but I've got to say, I thought they were oh, fantastic in Atmos. They were really, really good. Uh, I was quite surprised because they were pretty good soundtracks to start with. Obviously, the original releases were um, Dolby, um, DTS HD Master Audio 5.1. So if you don't have Dolby Atmos, you can still listen to it in Dolby True HD 7.1. Um, and those were good, but th these are awesome. Um, just even on the very first scene, which is just a bunch of um, Night's Watch guys leaving... Uh, the tunnel that goes through the wall and out into the frozen north. There's the portcullis rises, the sounds are echoing above you and around you. They've really gone to town on it. It's fantastic. So every scene, you know, whether it's uh, outside and um, say on the, the plains where the Dothraki are with all the grasslands and stuff, or whether you're in the bustling streets of King's Landing, that you're just surrounded by lovely you know, atmospheric sounds. Uh, but dialogue always nice and clear because obviously it's very important that they show dialogue. When the action scenes kick in, they really like um, particularly episode nine of season two which is the battle of blackwater bay i mean that's like you know full-on as good as any soundtrack i've heard for a movie uh so for a tv series i mean you know it's more than just a tv series it really is it looks amazing and now it, it just sounds even better and so, it's and it's also fantastic so boobs bums and violence in dolby atmos yep absolutely how, how, how do boobs sound more in dolby more. atmos <laughs> it's not like I mean I'm, I'm sure you agree with me mark if you're a fan of the show it's a no-brainer really and you've got atmos capabilities yeah. It's, uh, but it's Mark, Mark's never going to have that much capabilities, is he? <laughs> well, maybe not. But, uh, Might get a soundbar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're the five six hundred yeah. from um, from Yamaha. See, okay. Uh, yeah, also awesome. So, um, if you're a fan, or if you're still a collector, obviously, uh, or just want to get in Atmos, then um, then it's available as of twenty six for twenty ninety nine each. Right. Okay. So moving on to the, the big question then: What's at the cinema, Steve? 
Well, this week, of course, Philip Spector, which unusually opens on a Monday rather than a Friday. Sam Mendes is on record as saying he wanted to make a classic Bond film, and to a large part, he succeeds. Where the film slightly falters in trying to marry the classic Bond sensibilities with the darker tone established in the previous Craig movies. Um, I think now that the post-Olympics euphoria subsided, many of us probably realised Skyfall wasn't actually that good, and you had plot holes in it you could drive a bus through. Uh, so in that respect, I think Casino Royale remains the best Craig Bond film. But there's lots to enjoy, Inspector. Uh, you get an exciting opening credit sequence. Um, the song is a lot more bearable in context, uh, with a very classic credit sequence after that. Um, and there's some good comic interplay between Bond and both Q and Moneypenny. There's a really good, really brutal uh, fight scene on a train. There's a fun scene involving a plane chasing cars through the Austrian Alps. However, a lot of these scenes really do play like uh, like it's a James Bond greatest hits package. So, for example, the opening sequence really reminds you of um, uh, Live and Let Die with um, Baron Samdi. Then the fight train, the train, the fight on the train is a bit like um, From Russia with Love. The Alpine starts very on a Majesty's Secret Service. But it works. It works as a whole because it does make you, it certainly it deliberately reminds you of the classic Bond movies and therefore makes it feel like a proper Bond film in a way that perhaps the previous uh, Craig versions didn't. Um, even though the plot does somewhat jump on the current bandwagon of, you know, of, um, surveillance state and everyone being watched all the time. Um, so in terms of that's the good stuff, um, in terms of the not so good stuff, surprisingly and rather disappointingly, I didn't really find that Christoph Waltz's villain completely worked. I didn't buy into his connection to Bond and I didn't really understand what his ultimate goals were. So um, I know, you know, villains in Bond tend to have ridiculous schemes, but um, his seemed unclear to me, perhaps at least in the older films, whilst they're plans may have been bonkers. <laughs> you didn't know exactly what they wanted to do. Um, there's been a big fuss made before the film came out about casting Monica Bellucci, who is just over 50 now, uh, as a Bond girl, um, and how you know playing for a more mature older woman, which is great, except she's only in the film for five minutes. I mean, literally five minutes. So that's a disappointment. And so the majority of the Bond girl action is covered by Leia Sadu, who's just turned 30 and is therefore 18 years younger than Craig. And so I didn't feel that their relationship really worked because she seemed too young. They didn't have any real chemistry. And in the film, they deliberately um, mention on a number of occasions Vesper Lind, Eva Green's character, which just reminds you about how good she was in Casino Royale. Um, there's a car chase in the film that is played largely for last and therefore doesn't isn't particularly exciting. And coming off the back of some of the stuff we've seen in recent films like Mission Impossible, for example, which had a fantastic car chase, bike chase, that was really exciting and um, that was a bit of a damp squid for me. Um, and for some reason, despite, apart from the opening sequence, which is, you know, lots of people are in the opening sequence where there's this helicopter uh, stunt over a big crowd, the rest of the film seems to take place in, in a world when there isn't anyone at all. I mean, there's a car chase through the empty streets of Rome. And if you've ever been to Rome, that never happens. London's never looked emptier in my life, in its life. Um, the fight on the train appears to be no one else on the train and no one even mentioned the fact they just trashed half the train at the end of it. So it's it's kind of strange. I suppose they're doing that. That might be because they didn't want huge crowds uh, interfering with the filming. But it just makes it seem like Bond takes place in an alternative universe where no one exists, um, which I think somewhat diminishes the reality of it. And since they're trying to go for a degree of reality in amongst all the silliness, that that takes away from it. A, a, and, degree, a degree of reality where Aston Martin make one car just for him, and he's supposed yeah. to be a spy. <laughs> no, that's one way. Of well, standing, actually, right? funny enough, in the film they do. Um, they, you know, he's never been a spy. Bond is a hired assassin. It's always, always been. He's never been a, a spy. And they actually do reference quite regularly in the film the fact that he's not a spy but a hired assassin. So at least they address that fact. Um, 
it, what's annoying for me was that at the end of Skyfall, it's like, you know, they've got M, Money Penny, Q, and it's like, right, Bond, let's get to work. And you thought, oh, great, he's going to go on a mission and be supported by, by MI6 for a change. And once again, immediately he's off going rogue again and everyone's left him on his own, which I know might add more excitement to the, you know, and, and more danger and to, to Bond, you know, and put him in a predicament in, in a difficult situation. But you kind of feel like it would be nice if he was actually on a mission for once rather than going rogue. Um, so lots of it works, some of it doesn't work. I think Kaz's review is pretty much on the money in terms of his his opinion on it, and I would agree with most of what he says. Uh, and he gives it a 7 out of 10. Again, that's the score that I'd probably agree with. I mean, I think Craig is contracted for another film after this. He was contracted for two more after Skyfall, but this does play like it's his last outing. Uh, you know, the film, not only does it involve lots of um, throwbacks to the previous Bond movies, as in the classic ones, it also actually specifically draws attention to the previous three Craig movies. I mean, there are plot points taken up in the film that directly address the previous three films. So it feels like it's, it's tying everything up and finishing it all. So, you know, it might well be that this is his last outing. And if so, it works in that sense because it does give his character a degree of closure at the end. Uh, so overall, a fun, exciting, enjoyable it's a very long film too. It's well over two hours, two hours, 20 minutes, I think it is. So it's the longest Bond movie ever. Um, but yeah, it delivers in, in all the main areas I think that it tried to. And whilst there are a few areas that don't quite work, I, I certainly enjoyed it and came out of the cinema and think, yeah, no, that was a Bond movie. And, I've, and I'm not one of those people that's really bought into the Craig stuff. But I've enjoyed the Craig movies and I think Casino Royale's really good. But the whole rebooting and sort of ignoring the previous 45 years of Bond history was a bit annoying. And um, the, sort of the whole darker tone and seriousness was a bit, you know, I felt they went too far with that. And some people, people like Kaz, I think you really do like that kind of approach. Maybe won't enjoy the slightly more campy, fun aspects of, of Spectre. But um, for me, being a child of the 70s who grew up on the Mont, but the more era Bond movies, um, you know, things like um, Spy Love Me and Moonraker, um, there's a lot more of that kind of sentiment in it. And I, I enjoyed that personally. It, is the tone completely different to the three previous films? No, well, it's sometimes it's it's got the, the 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 more serious aspects, but the tone is a lot more classic Bond. So it's a lot more glow trotting, lots of glow trotting, lots of flash cars, um, you know, girls, um, gadgets, lots more gadgets than there has been previously, uh, and and obviously you got the the Bond the, the villains lair and and all the classic the henchmen, all the classic elements of the of old school Bond. So yeah, tonally it is different. There's a lot more jokiness in it. Um, and like I said, that doesn't always work. Sometimes, you know, you, trying to marry those two sensibilities doesn't always work. Um, I'd say it, it skews more towards the, uh, the classic campy bond than it does, um, the seriousness actually. And do you miss Judy Dench? Uh, I, I actually think they shouldn't have used Judy Dench from the beginning in Casino Royale because it's meant to be, if it's meant to be a reboot, why is the same character actor playing M from the previous Bond films? But I understand why they cast it, because I think they gave a bit of continuity to the previous films. But uh, do I miss a... I'm going to say no, and I'm not going to say why. You know, the one thing that's been lacking in the last three movies, when, when you look at classic Bond, is the gadgets. So have have they upped the gadget intake on this one? They have. They There, there are definitely more gadgets. And there's also um, some um, jokes at the expense of gadgets, particularly in the Aston Martin, uh, which, which um, like I said, in the, in the car chase, it's quite jokey. It's not... Uh, a serious action packed car chase it's mostly just uh, jokes revolving around the gadgets that are built into the car because it's a prototype that q's been working on um so yes but it's it's a lot more it's you know, i mean it's um there's definitely 
a, a really deliberate effort to bring in more of what you would cl- classify as classic Bond elements. So, you know, the interplay with Q. Um, I think uh, in the scenes he's in, Ben Whishaw nearly steals the film. It's fantastic as Q. Um, Money Penny's, you know, is in her traditional role now. Um, you've got um, Ray Fiennes as M, um, initially arguing with and then supporting Bond. So it's uh, it's got much more of those elements into into it um, than perhaps you've seen in the past with them um, with the Craig movies specifically. And uh, Thomas Newman, the score, any good? Yeah, um, actually, I don't think it's one of his best scores. It's it's a bit. Quite often, it kind of just disappears into the background. You don't notice it. It's it's um, fairly by the numbers. I, I I can't say I came out of the film, aside from when he uses the classic Bonds, you know, score. Uh, a couple of times that gets used but a lot of the time it, it's fairly perfunctory in the background and, I, and it didn't really stand out at all which is a shame because i think thomas newman did a great score on skyfall um so uh, I, I found it a bit of that a bit of a weak spot cinematography is interesting too it was it was uh unlike skyfall which was shot digitally this was shot on 35 mil um and it's uh i'm not sure whether it was the cinema i was in but i found the image to be quite soft and blown out a lot of the time well, that's interesting because not, cause it, not cause... that sharp, and and in, you know it didn't it lacked that sort of sharpness that I've seen with other films recently, uh, and uh, I'm not sure if that was deliberate in order to you know because obviously there's going to be a lot of green screen effects in there, um, and they're shooting on film whether they wanted to do it deliberately or to make it easy to drop slot the effects in or whether it was just uh, the projection I was at, so. But you mentioned something similar about Skyfall, didn't you? Yeah, well, I mean, Skyfall, uh, you know, the first half of the film, before they get to Scotland, the cinematography is fantastic. I mean, that fight scene um, in the skyscraper where it's just silhouetted against the the neon and all the rest, absolutely fantastic cinematography. Mm. And then the second half when they're in Scotland, and I love Scotland, and it's so cinematic, Scotland, but just the way they shot it, it, it the, there wasn't any life, and it was it was pretty yeah, dour. There's, there's a Scottish word for you. It was pretty dour. Yeah. <laughs> the Skyfall was shot by Roger Deakins, who doesn't shoot this, um, and it, so it lacks some of the artfulness possibly of, of Skyfall. Um, now you could say that Skyfall is basically an art house Bond movie, and that's probably the best way of describing it. Um, and uh, this is more of an old school Bond movie, so I guess there's different sentiments there, but. Um, yeah, I, I wasn't. I found I was surprised that um, it, it, I'm mean, interested to see what people think when they do see it in, in IMAX, because um, you might whether they feel that it had the sharpness and the the detail that I was looking for in something that was shot in 35 mil. But it, it um, I found it a bit disappointing in that respect. If I get the time, I'm I'm possibly going to go and see it on Friday night. So I shall let you know if I see it because uh, I'm going to go IMAX. Yeah, if I do go yeah. and see it. Um, just before people pull me up as well, I know the Scotland scenes were shot, actually shot in Ireland with the house. <laughs> before people pull me up on that. Yeah, most of it wasn't even shot in Scotland, was I, it? Was I was once? on about the Glen Evitt scene where they get out of the car and yeah. so on. I mean, that looks beautiful. The rest, round about the house, pretty dour, to be honest. Didn't do much for it. Whereas, like you say, the first half was very much, you know, how it was framed and lit and all the rest, and it looked fantastic, so... Mm. Yeah, definitely a, a film of two halves, that one. So it'll be interesting to see what this uh, what Spectre looks like. This one's got a lot more glow trotting in it than any of the previous Bond films. I mean, he goes to, I mean, he starts in Mexico, then he's in London, and then he's in Rome, then he's in Austria, then he's in Tangiers, and he's back in London. Yeah, he, he gets around a fair bit in this one. Although, interestingly, I don't quite know. <laughs> I know it's a Bond film, so maybe you shouldn't be thinking this, but I was thinking, like, they're on the run. Where are they getting all these clothes from? And, and where, who's paying for all this? <laughs> 
But uh, I guess that's just the nature of Yeah, comedy. you're not supposed to think like that, Steve. <laughs> you're just supposed to go with it. Because, you know, they've, they've, they've legged it from one country. The next thing you know, they're on a train and he's in his white tux and she's in a lovely <laughs> dress. You're thinking, well, when do they go shopping? <laughs> yeah. Well, well, the other thing is you don't see them queued up for four hours at immigration trying to get in. Yeah. Well, I mean, where do they get past? I mean, you know, it, just, it does make you think, how do they do any of this? But uh, I guess you're not meant to think about that. And that would just ruin the fun. But they so, see in the older films when he was, you know, on a mission being supported by MI6, you know, you, you understood where he was obviously getting from one country to the other because they were moving him around and covering the costs and helping him out with fake passports and whatever. So that all made sense. But when he's gone rogue and he's on his own, you're thinking, well, how is he doing any of this? So so your final score for Spectre was? Yeah, I agree with, I agree with Cass. Seven out of ten. It's, it's fun. It's enjoyable. It, it's got a few tonal issues here and there and a few things I didn't necessarily like. But uh, overall, it's an enjoyable, fun two, two hours and 20 minutes of the flicks. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, if, it is, if it is Craig's last Bond movie, uh, it was, he goes out on a good note. So it stands up against the, what's gone before then as a Bond film? Yes, yes. Like I said, I think Casino Royale, Casino Royale remains Craig's best Bond film. Um, it's definitely better than Quantum of Solace. Uh, and people will debate whether or not it's better than Skyfall. But Skyfall is a strange Bond film anyway, in a sense. That it was, like I just said, it's more like an art house Bond movie. And this is more like a classic Bond film. So if that was uh, Mendes' intention from the beginning, I think he succeeded. And Mark, are you going to go and see this at the cinema? Do you know, I might. I wasn't going to, but I've just suddenly got a fancy for it. I might go tonight. And our favourite Bond films up to this point, what's yours, Steve? My favourite Bond film of all time is on the Magic Secret Service. And you, Mark? I don't know. Honestly, I really honestly don't know. I'm not a Bond fan by any means. What's the one? Um, see, it'd be probably be based on a woman. It'd probably be based on what? On a woman, on the, on the best looking. I think Doctor No, for what's her face. Ursula Andress. Yeah. Fair enough. We can see what you watch movies of. It's a strange reason for picking a film. But... <laughs> no, I'm, just, I, I'm not a Bond fan. You know? <laughs> and on that bombshell, um, that's probably all we've got time for on the AV Forums podcast this week. My thanks to Steve Withers. And please return the equipment in one piece. And Mark Hodgkinson. So much for my promising career in espionage. And don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook, bookmark AV Forums for latest reviews, news and video. Plus, you can leave us a five-star ratings on iTunes. If you do, we'll read your name out on the show. I'm Phil Hinton. Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you again next week.